Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Hey, everyone. For those of you who celebrated Christmas yesterday, I hope you had a very Merry Christmas. I'm excited to share with you today's guest. He works in organizational change, but one thing he delves into briefly in this interview is the connection between organizational change and personal change, and he relates that to New Year's resolutions, for instance. And as we're getting down to the end of this year, you may be thinking about resolutions for yourself, for your organization, and for your life. And I encourage you to think about what you need to be doing, how you need to be taking action in order to bring about the change that you want to see in your life and in the lives of the people you're leading in the coming year. With that being said, we're going to get to more about our guests in just a second. But first... It's great when you have time to listen to podcasts, but sometimes you just need to get straight to the facts. And that's why we've put together the Leadership Action List. It's a year's worth of weekly action steps to improve your leadership. If you want to be a noticeably different leader in one year, this simple but effective resource is for you. Download this list for free at leadershipactionlist.com. Once again, for an entire year of weekly leadership development, go to leadershipactionlist.com. Our guest today is a partner and co-founder of Antos Global. He's spent more than 25 years helping organizations manage and sustain transformation. As a cognitive anthropologist, his research and practice focus on new approaches to organizational culture and change. He focuses on designing and implementing successful large-scale organizational transformation programs, as well as developing adaptive leaders who can do the same. His newest book, Disrupting Corporate Culture, focuses on how cognitive science alters accepted beliefs and impacts leaders and change agents. Here is David White. David, welcome to the podcast. Josh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. So I like to start off every single interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. Are you ready for these? Let's go. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? My leadership has been influenced greatly by a lot of failure, <laughs> in particular, uh, many efforts to try and drive large-scale change in complex organizations, large complex organizations, and a lot of failure in that, trying to uh, get large-scale organizations like Microsoft to change and really realizing the difficulties in doing that, which is what led me eventually to get my PhD and study culture. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? Curious, self-aware, empathic. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? We use this all the time in our practice. How do I feel and what do I want? The two most important questions a leader can ask themselves. What's a book that you would recommend to leaders? Oh, wow. There, there are so many. I'll recommend a book that has nothing to do directly with leadership, but it has everything to do with language and culture and change. It's called Metaphors We Live By by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. 
If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Get really curious about your people and your organization and why they do what they do. Love that. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I'm always about why. Why not's a good question too, but I think why is more powerful. It's more generative. Well, David, we are here today to talk about your new book, Disrupting Corporate Culture. And I would love for you to start off this interview with giving us a little bit of an overview of why you've written this book and why it's so important for leaders to be thinking about. You've kind of given us a little bit of a view of why you began studying corporate culture and how to influence it. But what brought you to this book in this time? Yeah, I alluded to it a little bit in my earlier answer to your questions, Josh. But basically, as I said, 25 now going on 30 years of work in corporations, mainly as an internal practitioner of organizational development and change, realizing that many of the approaches to culture that I saw being implemented in large companies like Microsoft and IBM and others were really not working. As I got into that question through my own PhD research, I realized that a lot of our approaches to culture are really based on very old science or just based on myths and outdated thinking that the cognitive science of the mind, the neuroscience of culture, if you will, has really has progressed rapidly and is giving us many new insights. And I realized that a lot of our approaches in the popular, in the mainstream to organizational culture are really just um, flawed. Naive is the way I would characterize it. Well-intended, but naive. And there's a lot of reasons for that. So what prompted me to write the book was really an outgrowth of my PhD dissertation and research is a try to write a book for leaders and practitioners uh, like myself to help them navigate this new world of, of cognitive neuroscience and the uh, neuroscience of culture to have, help them be more effective, essentially more impactful in using this, in working with this amazing complex resource called culture, arguably the most complex phenomenon in organizations. So you mentioned myths and old science, and and I'm hoping that you can speak a little bit to those two things, especially when it comes to old science. You know, sometimes people do research and it seems solid at the time or they're not taking certain things into consideration. And so a lot of popular articles are written off of that old science, and it takes a long time for more accurate information to be disseminated. What are some of those myths and what's the old science behind or connected to corporate culture? Yeah, and it's a great question because a lot of the, a lot of what happens is the trickle-down uh, effect feels like cognitive anthropology or cognitive sociology or linguistics, you know, don't really find their way always into the business world, which is dominated by research that comes out of MBA programs, um, typically. And MBA programs are usually, in their studies of culture, usually come from the fields of economics and psychology. These are two important fields, but they're not fields that have really put culture at the center of their agenda, their intellectual agenda. Anthropologists have been studying culture for over 100 years, but a lot of their work on culture is not really well known in the, in the business world. Anthropologists don't concern themselves much with business, typically. So there's been kind of a divide. One of the main myths of culture, there's, I, I actually cite five in my book, but one of the biggest ones and the most pervasive is this idea that the leader sets the culture, that culture somehow is a direct outgrowth of the leader, what they say or what they do or their mind or, or whatever. There's no, really no science, there's no research in anthropology or sociology or linguistics, uh, other cultural neuroscience that supports that claim. Um, leaders have something to do with culture, absolutely, but cultures form just as well in any group without any nominal leader be part of any group of any size, you'll see a culture form without any actual leader shaping it or actively doing anything to it. And that's because culture in the modern cognitive science conception actually comes from what people do. 
And it comes from what they think, which is a direct outgrowth of what they do. As we say in our field, culture follows task. The mainstream kind of popular way of thinking about it is actually the other way around, that somehow culture is a, somehow a dependent variable that a leader creates through what they say or what they do, and that somehow the culture kind of magically forms out of that. And that really comes from, again, as I said, a, a view of culture that's been dominated by psychology, which is really uh, an important field, obviously, but psychology is concerned with the individual. And obviously, psychologists are going to think of culture as something that the individual directly um, shapes or creates. And the actual way it works in, in the cognitive science conception is actually quite a bit more complex. So one of the things that you mentioned is that culture is going to form no matter what. And my question there connected to leadership is if, if leaders aren't the ones that are driving all of the culture, how do you make sure that you have the appropriate culture being built? Is there a way to direct that even if the leader is not entirely driving it? Or is it more of a hands-off approach? How should leaders be thinking about their influence and their relationship to their culture? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a complex question because, as I said, leaders have obviously something very much to do with culture. The way I like to explain it is, is this way. Think about it as culture is much more like water that the fish swim in or the air that we breathe. So the question then is, how does the fish influence the water in its own fish tank or in the ocean? How do we change the air that we breathe, right? It's much more a resource that is around us. So taking that metaphor one step further, Culture in the modern science conception is what we call a reference system. It's a kind of a mental operating system that runs in the background. It's a shared mental operating system, a mental OS that runs in the background of our daily lives. And it's a resource that we use to make sense of the world. And in organizations, especially any large organization, there's usually many reference systems at play. Those reference systems actually come, as I said, from what people do all day long, the problems they solve, the tasks that they use, and the meaning that they confer to those solutions. That also comes from the professionalization of the organization, the professional background and the thinking that's been shaped by the apprenticeship that professional groups go through, like engineers or lawyers or doctors. This is why you know, software companies have cultures that are much more alike. Engineering firms have cultures that are much more like each other. Law firms all feel similar. It's because of the professional orientation, the professional training of the dominant groups in those, in those cultures. So the question for leaders then is, if culture is kind of a given, given the task environment, the task of what the, you know, the, what the organization does all day long to sustain itself, to be successful, or the dominant professional orientation of its, of its powerful groups, how do leaders work with that? Well, the answer is, the biggest resource or the biggest lever that leaders have is conferred by power, right? Leaders set agendas, they allocate resources, they make hiring decisions, they set strategy, and all of those activities, the sort of the everyday stuff of leadership in their use of power, in the broadest sense of that term, all of those activities shape organizational practices. And the way to actually change culture is to actually change practices, then when I say I use the word practice, a practice is an informal or formal habit or routine or process, again, formal or informal, that the organization through which the organization runs its business. So leaders shape culture by shaping the practices that then shape the collective neurochemical processes of the brain. And it's a very similar analogy to if you want to lose 15 pounds, right, you can sort of make a New Year's resolution to, to lose weight or quit smoking. 
But until you actually change your own habits, your own routines, your daily life habits and routines, you're going to have trouble achieving that goal. The same is true at the organizational level. It's the actual habits and routines of the organization that need to be impacted, i.e. through practices. And that's how the collective neurochemical consciousness of the organization starts to change. And that's what leaders can do uniquely is influence and set or change those practices. So earlier you said that culture follows task. And do we just place practices and habits in place of task? Is that what you're talking about when you say culture follows task? Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. It's a culture follows task is kind of a convenient way of remembering it. But practices are, uh, again, the habits and routines of the organization. And all of that sounds actually pretty easy and simple in theory. Of course, you and I know that's quite complex. When I say practices, I'm talking about, for example, how an organization allocates resources, which departments get the larger budgets, how they go about setting strategy. What's their management system? How do they keep tabs on what's going on in the business? You know, is it 20 hours or 30 hours a month of management meetings? Is it walking around? Is it informal conversations, et cetera? And there are practices across the range of how organizations run their business. And when organizations start to really look at those practices pretty critically, when I say critically, I mean with full awareness, that's when you start to see how the culture or cultures are manifesting and how they can be leveraged or changed. It's a lot easier to talk about than to actually do. One of the things that I'm curious about is the relationship between leaders in new organizations or startups versus leaders in more well-established organizations. When it comes to shaping culture via practices, habits, tasks, is there a different role that the leader of a young organization has in an old organization? Or do you see these as essentially the same thing in slightly different contexts? Yeah, no, great question. There is something different that goes on in very, very small businesses or startups. And there is a transformation that happens. Some of the neuroscience, some of the cognitive science places that transformational process somewhere at around about 150 people. This is related to work by uh, folks like Rim Dunbar and others that have sort of studied relationships among primates and also relationships among humans and how many cognitive connections of relationship connections we can hold in our brains at any one time, which that number is, is around 150. But it is true that somewhere At a certain point in the organization, the habits and routines and values and norms established by the founders of the firm are going to become difficult to regenerate or perpetuate across the organization unless the practices of that organization embody those values and ideals and idealizations of the leaders. So it gets more difficult, obviously, with more people involved. Again, culture as a reference system comes from the collective shared mental representations the subconscious mental representations of the collective. And the more people there are in the organization, the more that collective mind, if you will, is going to be shaped by different departmental agendas, different professional groups, different orientations of the firm, et cetera. So yes, we are at Antos, our consulting firm. You know, We're a small boutique firm and we can definitely, in a more direct way, my partner, Lisa Koss, and, and I can sort of shape the culture in a more direct way because we're only about 20 people worldwide. We get into companies of 100, 200, 300 people, it gets a lot more difficult. We have to pay much more attention to the actual habits and routines and practices of the organization rather than just sort of going off of what we say or what we believe. So you bringing that up makes me wonder, how do leaders proactively identify areas in their culture that need to be changed? I think it's easy at times to be driven to a point where you see there needs to be a change. 
Is there a way when culture is like the air around us, it's hard to sometimes identify. Is there a way that leaders can proactively identify areas that need to change in their culture? And then as a follow-up, how do they help to drive that change by getting other people on board or setting up those tasks, those practices and habits so that that change can be affected? Yeah, culture is a slippery topic, right? Because it's hard to quote unquote, see your culture or cultures until you're actually trying to do something with them or change them, right? The classic example that we use and we see all the time is we have a lot of clients who are in, who are manufacturing industrial, you know, brick and mortar industrial companies that are trying to go digital, right? The digital transformation of the industrial world through IOT and, and related technologies. And these are companies that are essentially 100, 200 years old that are suddenly trying to become digital and data-driven companies versus, you know, manufacturers of equipment. Trying to become a digital company when the task environment of your, that's shaped your culture has been about making pumps or making refrigerators or making weights and measurement systems is exceedingly difficult. And so you come up against these limitations when you're trying to change these cultural limitations, when you start to realize that a lot of the habits and practices and routines of digital companies are just radically different than what you're habitually doing. There's an old saying in the manufacturing industry, we don't ship beta versions of refrigerators, right? But as you know, in the software world, in the technology world, no software company on the planet ships a piece of software that doesn't have bugs in it. They just will update and correct those bugs in the next release, which might be in two weeks. So that fundamental different way of approaching the world and approaching business is essentially a product of the task environment, i.e. its culture. So when you want to consciously change culture, you have to start really thinking about what is it that we do in our, in our practice environment that inhibits the change that we want to make and how do we start making those changes? And so there's a whole process by which that I outline in the book about how leaders start to go about doing that. A lot of it has to do with just identifying, the first step is really identifying for themselves what are the dominant logics, what we call the dominant logics, the dominant ways of thinking, the mental models that anchor us in our assumptions about the world. What are our basic assumptions about our business? Once you surface those, you see how those assumptions show up in all the different practices of your business, and then you can start to be choiceful about where you start to make change. You cannot change all practices all the time. That'd be incredibly destabilizing for your business. I wouldn't recommend it, but you can be very deliberate about where those high leverage practices are. For example, manufacturing company is spending 20, 30 hours a month in management meetings trying to sort of bring certainty into how they run their company. You might consider, are there other ways of achieving certainty than spending so many hours of so many people's times in meetings? Might you be able to push decision-making down the chain of command, for example? These are, these are practices that you can start to inculcate, if that makes sense. And for those leaders who are listening to this and still thinking, yeah, but, in that they think they can still be the primary drivers of cultural change in their organizations, what would be some words of caution that you might offer them or a way to begin reframing the way they see their current position in their organization. I would start by saying, great, you feel the responsibility and the weight on your shoulders to shape the culture of your organization. And I would say, absolutely go for it. Just keep in mind two things. One, it's not a linear process. It's not A plus B equals C. And culture is not a dependent variable. It's not like you can sort of manipulate the culture the way you can uh, manipulate your real estate or change your office design or buy and sell factory equipment, right? It's not a resource like that. So it's not a linear process and it's not a dependent variable. And once you start to realize that culture, again, is much more of the water that we 
swim in or the air that we breathe, you start to then see, okay, what are the practices that I can leverage that will start to change the dominant logic that anchors my culture in its current state? And that's a process of becoming really, really aware of the things that you do that keep you running in place. That's a hard task for anybody, right? If I were to say to you, Josh, here are the five things that you're doing that keep you from changing and being the leader that you want to be. That sometimes is a little bit of tough love that you as a leader would have to hear. It's a similar process. You have to become aware of the habits and routines and mental models that keep you locked into your current paradigms about the world and then be very clear-eyed about how to go about changing that. It's a more indirect way, but I would argue much more powerful way to affect culture change because you're getting at the DNA of culture. You're getting at what actually creates culture to begin with which is the, the shared reference system and the shared logics that keep that system in place. Well, David, I appreciate you coming on the show today and providing some of this paradigm-shifting thought for us when it comes to how we create and develop and direct culture as leaders. Now, before we finish up, is there anything that you'd like to leave the listeners with, whether it's something that you'd like to reiterate from our conversation today or, or maybe something that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about yet that you think is really important for people to hear? Thank you for asking. I think one thing that bears mentioning is that the things that I've been articulating these last few minutes, it's quite difficult for leaders to actually do that. And it does take, you know, as I said in response to your earlier questions, I think that one of the things that leaders need most in culture change is self-awareness and humility. Self-awareness, you can't have enough of it. (laughs) And humility, you can't have enough of it. And that's because when you start to surface these dominant logics, the, the DNA of your culture that keeps your organization stuck where it is, a lot of that is going to require leaders to realize that the ways they've been thinking about the world is maybe not well suited to the change the organization wants to make. And that requires some humility and some ability to sort of say, you know, we need to do things differently, folks. And that's a process of self-awareness and curiosity and humility that I think is very, very important. So culture change is not for the faint of heart. Absolutely. And it requires fairly mature and self-aware leadership to enact. And I guess that would be the one thing I would bring to the fore. Well, David, thank you so much for joining the show today. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work and especially your new book, Disrupting Corporate Culture? Yeah, thank you. Our consulting firm is ontos, O-N-T-O-S global.com, O-N-T-O-S global.com. And the book is out on Amazon, Disrupting Corporate Culture. There's also a YouTube channel devoted to uh, all of the science of the cultural mind at Disrupting Corporate Culture on YouTube. That's where you can find us. All right, David, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Josh, thanks for the great questions. Appreciate it. Once again, if you'd like to connect with David, you can go to his website at ontosglobal.com. And if you would like other ways to connect with him, check out the show notes down below for how to do that. Now, let's go ahead and get you today's three key takeaways. The first one is this. It's a pervasive myth in leadership that leaders set the culture. It was interesting that David said cultures form just as well in any group without a nominal leader. So if cultures form, regardless of whether or not you are there, if you're in the mix, how are you shaping the culture? And that connects to our second key takeaway, which is that power shapes practices, which then shape culture. Another way that David summarizes is that culture follows tasks. So if you have the power, you're able to shape the practices, which then are able to shape the culture. The way that you're shaping the culture is by using your power in effective and appropriate ways to get the culture to where you want it to be. And the final key takeaway is that the values and norms established by founders in particular are difficult to regenerate unless the practices 
of that organization embody those values and ideals, which sounds kind of obvious, but if you think about organizations that stray from their original ideals and the vision of the founder, that is usually because the practices don't embody the ideals and the values set by that founder. So if you want to make sure that your organization continues in the path that you envisioned for it, make sure that your practices embody those values and ideals. Speaking of practices and using your power well, if you want to make sure you're doing the right things to grow as a leader, one thing I would recommend you do is download the free leadership action list at leadershipactionlist.com. You'll get one action step recommended for you every single week for an entire year. This is going to be a great tool to help you make sure that you're taking the right steps to create the culture that you want for your own organization. Once again, that's leadershipactionlist.com. I look forward to sharing with you once again next week. And until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist... It feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.